I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Heather. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. And it's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, Englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, I'm your host, Heather Tesco. As I get started, here is my holiday gift to you. Okay, so I'm going to start sending out regular monthly newsletters to keep in touch with people who listen to this podcast in a different way. So we're going to have book and CD giveaways, promotions, exclusive content, interviews that are beyond what I put on the podcast, and it's all going to be in like a monthly newsletter. And if you sign up for the newsletter, before the end of the month, before the end of November, in the next four days, <laughs> I'm going to send you a Tudor-themed digital advent calendar that I created. So every day opens up to a different Tudor or Elizabethan holiday treat, like a Renaissance Christmas playlist, or a holiday video at Hampton Court, or a recipe for wassail. Because I know you're all sitting around saying, man, I wish I had a recipe for wassail right now. 
right? I know you are. So go to the website at www.englandcast.com and sign up. It just is an email address. And I'm totally not going to spam you. If I had time to send out spam emails to people, I would potty train Hannah. Um, So, you know, totally free and you'll get the monthly newsletter with chances to win books and CDs and all kinds of fun things like that. And of course, you can totally sign up anytime in December. And if you're listening to this in a year or whatever, you can still sign up. It's just that if you want to get the advent calendar for all 24 days in December leading up to Christmas, then you should sign up so that you get it in time for December 1st. And I'm still going to send it to you even if you sign up afterwards. It's just you'll have missed the first couple of days. Anyway, so go to the website, sign up, englandcast.com. Also, a quick reminder that if you like this podcast, please rate it in whatever service you use to listen to it. If it's iTunes or Stitcher or something else that I don't even know about, it helps other people to find the podcast and decide if it's something that they want to listen to. And finally, last admin announcement. You can call me now at 8016-TESCO or send me a text. Again, it's 801-683-9756. And that's my listener feedback line. You can leave me feedback, show ideas, nice thoughts, anything like that. Yeah, send me a text or give it a call, 8016-TESCO, 801-683-9756. Okay, so this week I'm talking about the rise of Henry VIII's Navy. He was the founder of the Royal Navy and how England went from being this kind of place where even fishermen rarely went beyond the view of land into a naval powerhouse that was able to defeat the mighty Spanish Armada within just two generations. Along the way, we'll be talking about famous ships like the Mary Rose and the Great Harry, victories in France and Scotland, defeat in France and ultimately the emergence of a naval power. So let's start by talking about ships, shall we? Ships in general were going through a major transition during the Renaissance, thanks to the growth in trade between Northern Europe with their heritage of the Norse kind of Viking ships, and Southern Europe, which had a more Mediterranean tradition. And the new ships that were kind of built out of combining these traditions were faster, they could sail further, they could also sail closer to the wind, which made it easier to sail to places that were previously difficult to reach because of prevailing winds. So, of course, this would eventually lead to all the different voyages of exploration. What we're also interested in is the idea of how a ship could be used in warfare, which was also changing. In the Middle Ages, Ships were a means of transport. You would put all of your soldiers onto your ship and you would have some archers to kind of cover them as they disembarked. You would sail to France or Scotland or anywhere else you wanted to make war. And you would disembark with your archers perhaps covering you. And the men of war would get out, the soldiers would get out, and you would proceed to fight. But This was changing during the the Tudors, largely in part to the invention of gun ports. Ships would have these watertight holes in their sides where you could put cannon. So ships were actually turning into a weapon themselves rather than just something that was a a transport. And so you would also have guns and cannon and gunpowder coming in and being more 
widely used in warfare was was part of this as well. So it was a, a period of a lot of transition. And people were still figuring out the best ways to work with ships, to use gunpowder on ships. Looking at Henry VIII now, before he became the womanizer that we all so lovingly know now, he was, of course, interested in all things military, and especially ships and guns. And he would retain that interest. I don't mean to make light of it and say before he became a womanizer, he was interested in this stuff and then it all went away. He was always interested and it was a lifelong kind of interest that he had. He really loved to receive pictures of ships. It was like one of his favorite gifts. If you wanted to get on his good list at Christmas time, you would give him a picture of a ship. And he also owned a really rare European title almanac. So it was a, a really rare thing that he had. Twice during his reign, he struck gold coins bearing the image of ships as well. And he often left London to keep up on maritime affairs in different ports so that he could see for himself what was going on. And he really was involved in all of the shipping, all of the Navy kind of activities. A list of shipping that had been hired on his behalf in 1512 was actually corrected in his own hand, for example. So, you know, he was really involved in, in the shipping side of, of his administration. When ships were at sea, they were required to keep the king directly informed of events. Henry actually may have also participated in designing ships himself. Eustace Shapui, the imperial ambassador, who had no reason, of course, to exaggerate Henry's talents. Towards the end of his reign, he wrote that Henry had begun to, quote, make ships with oars, of which he himself is the architect, unquote. So Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, started the Tudor interest in ships, although he certainly didn't have the same level of, of enthusiasm as his son did. Though the monarchy had used Portsmouth Harbor since the 12th century, it had briefly been a galley base under King John, and Henry VII was the first monarch to spend a lot of money on its defenses. He really wanted a fully functional naval base on the south coast. Of course, he had invaded from Brittany, so he was familiar with the threats that that the South Coast could pose, and he wanted a, a naval base on the South. So he ordered construction also of its first dry dock in 1485, was on the southwest tip of Portsea Island. And Henry VII left his son two big men of warships. There was the four-masted regent of a thousand tons and the three-masted sovereign that was just slightly smaller. There were also three much smaller royal ships, including Mary and John, Sweepstake, and Mary Fortune. And this was the Navy when Henry VIII came to power. That was it. That's when Henry VII left his son. With that being said, though, in fairness to Henry VII, another change that was happening during this time was, was the idea that the monarchy needed a standing navy. Up until now, the king would simply call on merchant ships as he needed them. And maybe it's in part the growth of the specialization with guns on board that made that a little bit less likely. But traditionally, the king's ships would be only partly owned by a monarch. And generally, they were intended to trade like any other ships. The profits would sometimes actually go right into the monarch's own pockets rather than the treasury. 
And if hostilities broke out, it was easy to turn a merchant ship into a warship. And generally, monarchs would rent boats also, with the fee being per ton per month. And Henry VIII did this as well. In 1512, he was paying one shilling per ton per month. That was a rate that wasn't very generous to the ship owners. Sometimes the monarchs would even rent out their own ships. So this was kind of a two-way street. They would rent out their own ships to merchants. Henry Tudor, Henry VII, had let out his sovereign towards the end of his reign to merchants who were going to the Mediterranean. From time to time, ships could be conscripted into the king's service. Uh, It was called being arrested into the king's service. And sadly, if the ship was lost, of course, they weren't compensated for that. So you didn't really want that to happen to you if you owned a ship. But it, it could. So another monarch that was leaning towards building a navy at the time, which made it even more important for Henry, Henry VIII, was James IV of Scotland. Scotland, was very, of course, was very similar to England in being dependent on the sea and having a, a long coastline. In 1506, four years after signing a perpetual peace treaty with England, James had informed Louis XII of France that he was determined to build a fleet capable of defending Scotland against anyone. By the end of his reign, he had acquired 38 ships. One of those started in 1506 was this super ship. It was called the Michael. It was a thousand tons. It needed a crew of over 300 to work her. It was pretty much the biggest vessel afloat when it was completed. For the first time, a ship carried real artillery, the kind that soldiers in siege warfare would recognize. It was a really big deal for people, for, for ships at this time, this, this change in mindset that a ship could have real artillery. The ship carried 120 gunners to work the cannons in addition to the regular crew. Henry quickly came to the conclusion that he was going to have to match her with a great warship of his own. The idea of a navy at the time was was kind of a three-tiered job. First, the warships were there to protect a country's interests from pirates or other predators. And sometimes they took soldiers to warfare, like I said. And finally, they enhanced the stature of the sovereign. For England, the primary job was to protect the merchants and the commerce. English trade at this time actually did extend all the way up to Iceland in one direction, the far end of the Baltic in the other, down the Atlantic coasts of France and Spain, and into the Mediterranean just a wee bit. So England imported a wide variety of items like wine and produce and spices. It exported mostly fish and coal from Newcastle, and wool was turning into the number one export at this point as well. So it's really important to make sure those traders were protected and they would be escorted along parts of their routes. But of course, glory and reputation was a prime motive for Henry VIII in all things, as we have seen. And he quickly began making war against France in an alliance with his father-in-law, Ferdinand of Aragon, and the Holy Roman Empire. He had an early failure in 1512 when Edward Howard, who was the admiral, after having a successful expedition to Brittany, returned and wound up losing a major ship, the regent, in what should have been a really easy battle. And it was because the ship's captain tried to use the traditional tactic of grappling and boarding an enemy ship for hand-to-hand combat. And while this was happening, an explosion on the Breton ship caused 
both of them to catch fire. They were both lost, taking about 1,500 men with them. And again, this would be another major turning point in naval warfare as people turn towards firing artillery to sink a ship rather than that traditional form of grappling and, um, you know, kind of going up to a ship and trying to board it and have hand-to-hand combat. So a lot of changes going on in, in fighting, naval power, naval fighting at this time. So that was 1512. It was a bit of a setback for Henry. He did recover quickly, though. He spent much of 1513 winning battles in both France and when his wife, Catherine of Aragon, was acting as regent. Um, she oversaw winning the famous Battle of Flodden in Northumberland, where the English beat back the invading Scots, killing much of the Scottish nobility, including the king. And right around the same time, the Scots suffered another setback when their navy was affected by some very violent storms while they were aiding the French against the English and their great ship, the Michael, ran aground and was almost lost. It was left behind when the Scottish fleet sailed home in November. The French actually bought her for 40,000 francs. This, All of this is the backdrop against which Henry started his shipbuilding project. He began with the Mary Rose and her sister ship, the Peter Pomegranate, in 1510. The Mary Rose is the most famous because of its history. It was sunk in 1545 in the Battle of the Solent in the Straits off the Isle of Wight when the French were trying to invade England. And attempts were made for years with divers trying to rescue her in some way, but it wasn't until 1982 that she was salvaged, and now she's undergoing a major reconstruction in Portsmouth. Almost 15,000 items were preserved, and so she's a bit of a Tudor time capsule with personal items like shoes and combs mixed in with navigational tools and coins and mugs and even the remains of a small dog. So both the Mary Rose and the Peter Pomegranate were really large warships, warships that had specially built gun ports in the sides of the boat on their special platforms. And the Mary Rose served for 35 years, and the Peter Pomegranate was last mentioned in the records in the late 1550s, which means that she had served for almost 50 years. In response to the Scottish ship, the Michael, though, there was a bit of an early sort of arms race with Henry building the Henri Grassadou, which was also called the Great Harry, and that was his response to the Michael. It was built at the new naval yards in Woolwich, which Henry had created specifically to build his new ship. And this ship, let me tell you guys, it was amazing. It had 43 heavy guns, 141 light guns. She was one of the first ships to be able to fire her guns broadside, which meant that she could actually go up parallel to a ship, be right next to the ship, opening up those newly invented watertight gun ports along the side of the boat. She could fire all of her cannon from the side simultaneously, which would, of course, be totally devastating, though of course, it took an expert captain to be able to maneuver a ship to be able to pull off something like that. But it was really amazing. And the Great Harry's forecastle, the bit that you always see in paintings on either side that goes up really high, it's called the forecastle. The Great Harry's was four decks high. She had a crew of between seven and 800 men. 
And she saw little in the way of actual action, though she was at the same battle where the Mary Rose was sunk. And she was mostly used for kind of diplomatic things, for showing off. She took Henry to the field of the cloth of gold. And she was his pride and joy kind of flagship. After Henry died, she was renamed for Edward. And then she's lost in the record. It's a great shame this magnificent flagship was just sort of lost, though it is possible that she burned in a fire that happened in Woolwich in 1553. So we've got Henry building ships. And at the end of his reign, he left a navy of over 50 great ships, which was, as you'll remember, about 10 times the size of what he was left with when his father died. He had also created the new dockyards at Woolwich and Deptford to build and house these great ships. All of this activity needed support, both in terms of paying the workmen and also provisioning them while they were working. To build the Great Harriet took 252 men. And because there weren't very many men with shipbuilding experience in London, the men came from all over the country, including Plymouth, Dartmouth, Exeter, Poole, Ipswich, York, and others. They were all paid a half penny a mile to cover their travel while they came to Woolwich. And on site, their pay varied depending on what skills they had. But in general, it was between two pence and six pence for a shipwright. That's per day. Two pence to five pence for a laborer. And everyone received free lodging and meals while they were working. This was actually a much better deal than they would have received under Henry's father, Henry Tudor was so famous for being miserly, and he, of course, expected them to pay their own way and their own lodging while they were working for him. Not Henry VIII, though. He fed them well. The food that they received would have been really high quality, too. They received meals of beef, cod, herring, oatmeal, plus rations of bread and ale. So they were fed well. Doing a project like this even only once or twice would have been a major feat, But doing it enough to be able to leave your successor over 55 ships took a level of project management that needed an expert in administration. So enter our good friend Thomas Cromwell. Henry created the Naval Board to oversee the administration of the Navy, but that wasn't until 1546, by which point Cromwell had already lost his head. However, while his head was still attached, he had earned the king's favor by, of course, being very efficient in the way he handled Henry's money, and also the way he obtained money for Henry through dissolving the monasteries, though that's a totally different subject. The point is, Cromwell was this project manager who could have written a book on project management. When Henry broke with Rome to marry Anne Boleyn, there was a question of where the tax money that had previously gone to the Pope would go. Cromwell suggested that it should go towards provisioning the sea defenses, and he appointed his friend Stephen Vaughan as the king's agent in the Low Countries. One of his major tasks was to procure naval stores. So basically, during this whole first part of the century, you're seeing this movement from the king not being involved at all in maintaining a navy very much and simply renting merchant ships when he needed to in order to go to war to then a movement towards the king having having his own fleet, and it's a specialized fleet that you, you couldn't just use these ships for trading. These weren't trading ships. These were ships that had artillery, things you could use in siege warfare on them. You needed very specialized skills with the people that were working on the ships. You needed to have gunners. You needed to have very specialized skills. 
All of this required, of course, this administrative network to be able to support it from one sort of central office so that the responsibility was streamlined in a single line of command rather than through all these disparate places. So if you're just renting out ships from merchants, you know, you could have all kinds of people all over the country taking care of that. But if you've got all of these, if you've got ships that have crews of 500, 600 men, you need to have one kind of office that's taking care of getting the stores for them, of provisioning them, and making sure that you're able to fix them when they spring leaks, and you're able to fix the guns as they break. And it all you know, became a project that needed a whole administrative side. And that's what you're seeing kind of developing during these first 50 years. So the break with Rome, of course, meant that in addition to being able to marry Anne Boleyn, it also meant that Henry was going to be facing the threat of war again, this time from Catholic powers who saw a chance to get in good with the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor while also making things difficult for England. Because of the new threat of war specifically with France, Henry decided to keep 30 ships active even during peacetime to patrol the coasts. This meant that you needed to have more facilities on shore, have, again, more administration, more people to fix the ships when things go wrong because they're not just being stored throughout peacetime. You have to pay people to be on the ships during peacetime as well. So again, that was another big expense. It was a really big jump to having this navy that was perpetually active. In 1545, the French had tried to invade again with 30,000 men. It was actually a larger armada in terms of ships than when the Spanish invaded with their armada 40 years later. The Mary Rose was the most famous casualty of this invasion. The French troops were repelled both by the English weather and the English troops. They returned to France, and then Henry created the Navy Board, in 1546, it was organized with seven officers in charge, each in charge of a specific area that was presided over by a vice admiral. And during peacetime, the Navy actually spent a lot of its time chasing pirates. So again, protecting the merchants. That was another big role of it. Henry also began casting cannon in England. By the time of Elizabeth, England had a huge ironworking industry Ironworkers using furnaces developing cast iron cannons. They weren't as durable as bronze cannon, but they were much cheaper and they could be produced in England with English materials. And in the next episode, I'm actually going to talk about the economy of the iron in the forest of the Weald and the growing economy around cast iron in Tudor England. So that's it for this week. The book recommendation is Great Harry's Navy by Jeffrey Morehouse. I'm going to put a link up on the site and on the Facebook page. Again, the Facebook is facebook.com slash Englandcast. And go to the site. Go also because you should sign up for the mailing list and get your digital advent calendar in time for Christmas. Merry Christmas. And also there's show notes. So go to the site, englandcast.com, and there's show notes up for this episode with links, the book recommendation, videos, all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, don't forget to sign up for the mailing list. Check me out on YouTube. I do a Tudor Minute pretty regularly on Tudor history. So there's links up to that. It's quick little bite-sized, five-minute bite-sized bits on Tudor history, different aspects of things. And sometimes my daughter Hannah makes an appearance. <laughs> and there's a link to that all on the site. And hey, you guys, thank you so much for your listenership and your support. The next episode, like I said, in two weeks is going to be on the burgeoning Industrial Revolution 
No, not the one in the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm talking about the iron industry that took off at the close of the reign of Henry VIII and what that meant for the English economy. So I hope you're having a wonderful season of Advent. I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving and you're still enjoying your Thanksgiving weekend. And I'll talk to you guys again in just about two weeks. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Blow, northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hörte Bord in Bauerbrick, that soul is semis on sicht. Mensch, cool, maiden of licht, fair and freight of thunder. In all this war, fish of one, bord of blood and of bone. Never yet in Houston on, not so merry in London.